Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, our guest is David Whitsett. He is a retired professor of psychology who is best known for teaching a class dubbed Marathon 101. In that class, he helped teach a physical and mental training regiment that took non-running college students through a course in a semester that helped them to complete their first marathon. And we discuss his book, The Non-Runner's Marathon Trainer, in which he details the physical and the mental schedule along with the proven psychological techniques that help those students complete their first marathon. I personally have used the book to complete my first marathon in 2007, and I did so after a very difficult and painful surgery. My mom also used it a year later to complete her first half marathon. The techniques, the physical training schedule work. David explains why he decided to start teaching the class, the reception that the book has had since its release, and how the psychological techniques in the book can be applied for the attainment of any goal. We discuss how to eliminate negative thoughts, how to take advantage of the theater of the mind to program your subconscious into helping you achieve difficult and distant goals. David also explains why it's important to have an internal locus of control and why an internal locus of control is critical for long-term happiness and success. I exercise my health freedom by taking Kratom. Kratom is a plant supplement from Southeast Asia. I use it every day to help manage my chronic pain. The only brand of Kratom I trust comes from naturalorganics.com. That's natural and then organic spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-X dot com. You can use the promo code chronicallyhuman20 to get 20% off your next order. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you're able to take some of these mental techniques that David talks about and apply them in your own life to the attainment of the goals that are important to you. Thank you, David, for being on the show today. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, we have you on the show to talk about your book, The Non-Runner's Marathon Trainer. Now, that book came out in 1998, I believe. That's and correct. It had an enormously positive impact on my own life and also on my mom's life. I was able to complete a full marathon myself, and then the next year, my mom, she used the book to complete a half marathon. And so this great. book is, is very important to my family, and I think it has a lot of great um, into like uh, great cognitive tools that people can use not only to practically finish a marathon but to to accomplish other things in life as well that was the intention so i'm glad you feel that way yeah definitely just to give you a little background on myself i i was chronically ill since the age of 11 i was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and at age 12 i had my colon removed and so i've had 20 surgeries since then, 50 hospital stays, and, you know, hundreds of doctor's visits. And so uh, in 2006, I had a particularly bad surgery where just about didn't make it out. Uh, it was really terrible. And But as I was recovering from that, I started walking around my hospital room, and I would go one lap and then two laps. 
And then I decided right there to finish uh, my first marathon. And I had bought in your book, uh, The Non-Runner's Marathon Trainer, years before. And so when I got out of the hospital, I started reading that. Seven months later, I finished my first marathon. So I wonder. Wow, that's great. I love hearing that. Thank you for, for writing that book. And if you could give our audience uh, a little bit of your background of how you got started with the book and how you became a professor of psychology. Well, I became a professor of psychology as a result of some contact with a guy named Frederick Herzberg. Frederick Herzberg is, was many years ago a very well-known theorist on, on the subject of motivation. And I was one of his students. And he was so stimulating to me that I think a guy who, like me, who wasn't really that much of an academically oriented person was so stimulated by him. And I found his theories so fascinating that I worked all the way through a Ph.D. in psychology. So how I got to be a Ph.D. psychologist is like that. Now, with respect more specifically to the book, I ended up after some moving on from different places, teaching at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, Iowa, beginning in 1974. And I was very interested in the relationship between physical performance and mental behavior. And I'd worked with the wrestling team at the University of Northern Iowa. I knew the coach reasonably well. And I was sort of the team psychologist for the wrestling team. But the, that was the only sport that I had really looked at very carefully until I met a guy named Forrest Dolgener, who is the, one of the co-authors of the book. And Forrest Dolgener and I used to run together at noon sometimes. We were both interested in running. And Forrest is a professor of exercise science. And so he was, uh, he knew a lot more than I did about the physical basis of a lot of sports. And we're running around in circles of the dome some, sometime. And I don't, neither of us remembers exactly how this subject came up. We tried to talk about it, but we ended up talking about, I wonder what the connection is between the benefits, which he knew all about of exercise in terms of your physical health and what I suspected, which was if you get in better physical shape, you also get in better mental shape. We didn't know if that was a fact, but we thought maybe it would be. And so we started talking about how we'd get a group of students to commit to becoming in better shape so that we could see if they got in better shape mentally. And we finally decided the way to do that was to give them credit for it. So instead of just asking them to participate in a study, what if they got academic credit for it? Well, what could we teach that we could give them academic credit for that they'd also commit to being subjects in research? And it turns out that every spring at the end of our semester, right around the end of our semester, another university in Iowa, Drake University, had what was called, and still is, the Drake Relays, which was a track meet, but it also had a marathon attached to it. So Forrest and I first start talking about getting kids to run a 10K, 6.2 miles, in connection with that. But somehow, and we don't know, we don't remember how, we end up saying, well, if we're going to let them run, let's let them really run. Let's see what happens if they get in good enough shape. And by they, we meant students who'd never run more than three miles. To, what happens if you train those kids to run 26.2 miles? What happens to them mentally? We know what happens to them physically, at least we thought we did. That's how the whole thing started. And so for the first time in 1985, we offered a course on campus called Fitness and Mental Health and opened it up and said, you want to run a marathon? and you're willing to subject yourself to some psychological tests and some poking and prodding. And we got 15 kids that said, yeah. So we taught it for the first time in 1985 with 15 students. They were subjects in our research. They signed all the usual releases and all that kind of stuff. 
We give them all kinds of checks. We send them to physical. They got checked out with doctors to make sure they weren't going to blow up somebody's heart or whatever. Right. We put them on a treadmill and ran them to maximum on a treadmill to find out how much their VO2 max was, which means their volume of oxygen per kilogram of their body weight per minute they could push. Because we knew that would get better, so we got a baseline there. Had them take a bunch of questionnaires and look at all kinds of things going on. Trained them six days a week and took them to Drake the Drake Relays Marathon in May of that year, and all of them finished. So we thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And we looked at the data and it looked really good. And we thought, I think we got something here. Let's teach it again. So we taught it four more times in 1988, 90. I think I made a note, so I thought you might ask me this. Uh, yeah, 93. And we were teaching it again when this book was published in 1998. By that time, by the time 98 and 93 came, we had so many students trying to get in, we had to draw their names out of a hat to see who got in. The last time we taught it, listen to this, Brett, 199 students attended the pre-meeting where you got either found out you got in or not. 199 filled the auditorium in one of the biggest buildings on campus. Wow. We laid it out. We said, here's what you're going to have to do. How many want to stay? Well, about 175 or 199 stayed even after they heard all the bad news. And we drew, we had them put their name on a piece of paper, stuck them in a big barrel, and pulled out, how many did we have? 50. We took 50 of them. They were still doing it, Fred. They all finished again. In all the years we taught it, only one guy didn't finish. And that's a whole other story if you want to hear it. It's fun. But anyway, that's the, that's the way we did it. And so we taught it five times. And then I taught it one more time in 2007 at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, because one of the people who'd been in the course, a guy named Scott Trappy, had in the interim gotten a PhD in exercise science and was the director of the Ball State University exercise science program. And he called me up one day and says, remember that marathon course? Let's teach it here in Iowa or in Indiana. Come on, come on over here. I'll give you someplace to live and we'll teach it. So we taught it again in 2007 at Ball State in Indiana and they all finished again. So we thought, I think we got something here. I, I would agree. I think that's a, a fascinating story that you went to combine the best of cognitive behavioral psychology with proven track record of of a, a known distance, that 26.2 marathon, which culturally is a big milestone for a lot of people. Exactly. And, and the, the mental part of it, the cognitive part of it, remember I told you about Fred Herzberg, the, guy, the, the, the motivational theorist? What Herzberg taught me is the relationship between motivation and achievement is not what we think it is. We think you gotta be motivated to achieve. Well, to a certain extent that's true, but it's actually achievement that comes first. Achievement is so exciting to most people that it motivates them to wanna to feel that way again so they try harder. That's why little kids are so excited all the time because they're getting better at everything every day. It's so thrilling, they're almost overwhelmed by it. We can't figure out why they're running around bouncing off the wall because they're achieving. That's what's going on. So we constructed a training program that had the students run each weekend further than they ever had before in their lives. It slowly builds up each weekend. And what they come to believe is, well, I couldn't finish this weekend because I finished last weekend. In other words, they go first five miles, then they go seven, then they go nine, then they go 10, then they go 12, then they go, but they never run the full marathon. They go up to 18 miles twice in the training. You know that, you are familiar with the yeah. But you, but you can remember the feeling. Every time you do that, you have achieved something that you never did before. You ran further than you ever thought you could. So it's based on the idea that achievement leads to motivation. Success is what's so exciting for human beings. 
So you create an experience where people succeed and they get excited about it. Now, one more thing, the definition of success. The whole program was designed to have the definition of success be finish the marathon. No time goals. No, because can you imagine training for 16 weeks, setting a time goal and then missing the time goal by two minutes when even you ran 26 miles and you regarded it as a failure? We couldn't. We didn't want our people to do that. So we, the book is full of references to the goal is finish. Finish. Any time at all, any speed at all, even if you have to walk, the goal is finish. And when they do, they get excited just like they did on all the weekly training runs. And that's what I found as well. I, I, I don't say I ran a marathon because I did walk a lot of it myself, you know, but I finished and I think I was fifth from the, the last. But at the same time, you know, that definition of success, I think, is very important. And we set ourselves up for failure in a lot of things what we do when we define success in the wrong way. Absolutely true. And, and what you just what you just said is the, is the key issue. This is not really a book about marathon training. This is a book about self-training, about teaching yourself that you can do anything if you give, if you commit yourself to it and if you're willing to do the work to get there. The marathon is a vehicle. And you're right, it's socially a big vehicle. You know, a lot of people talk about it. But, it, but, the, but it's a vehicle. It's a, it's a way for you to experience what it's like to put everything into, into the barrel of going for it, to do all the work, to do all the hard work, and then feeling that finish when you cross that finish line. I can't tell you how many of my students would come across the finish line literally with their fists in the air, bring on the world. I can do anything. So the marathon is just a, it ha, it's a powerful vehicle, but it's just a vehicle. The book is really about developing your ability to do whatever, to make your own reality, which is, as you know, I'm sure, the core of the whole book, making your own reality. And that's what I, I reread the book before we talked today. Um, and that, that's the first chapter is make your own reality is that you do right. have more control over um, over your experience in life than a lot of times that we give our credit ourselves credit for. That's absolutely true. A lot of times the reality that we make for ourselves is negative, and we think that we're not making our own reality, but we are. But, but we can turn that around to, so that the reality we make is a positive reality. But we have to recognize we human beings are unique. We've got these big frontal lobes, so we've got three pounds of brain up in there. And it can imagine all kinds of things. No other creature can do this. We know that's true because the brain structure's not there. Okay? So you, believe me, your dog is not making images in his head about what it was like when you came home yesterday. That, I know they get excited when you come home, but it ain't because he, he's got a mental image of you coming to the door. That's not how it works. But, but, we, but we do it all the time. We create our own reality all day, every day. All we're suggesting here is you grab hold of that and create a reality that's helpful to you instead of one that gets in your way. So we would tell the students, for example, you can, you can create whatever you want. We go out on a day on a Saturday runs. We all took them out together on Saturday. And suppose it's really cold and windy. Well, you can say, oh, God, this wind is killing me. Or you can say, I love it when it's windy. I, man, I can't. I just, man, isn't this great today how the cold the wind is? I love that. It, and, you're, and you'll believe it. If you just repeat it to yourself, you create your own reality every day of every week of your life. You talk about it in the book, too, about self-talk is self-programming. You, you mentioned that a little bit beforehand about inside yeah. your mind. It's like having a computer screen and who controls the keyboard controls the reality. 
And a lot of times we give that keyboard to other people and we just passively consume media all the time or the negative influence of others without, um, I remember when I was running some of those times is that I would physically, or not physically, but I would imagine myself physically typing on a keyboard. I am a marathon runner, you know, I love running, you know, and and I would hit each letter, each key in my imaginary Mm -hmm. keyboard, but that it really did help um, get through those miles. Sure. We had students that um, we encouraged them all to to develop what we could call mental. Then we were talking about tapes, you know, like as though like a little cassette tape. We talk about CDs or DVDs now. But I actually had the students create everybody had to create one for themselves, two to three minutes in which something really positive, finishing the marathon or crashing over the hill tops, the tops of hills or whatever it was, but two or three minutes long. And it had to, had to have all the senses involved. You had to have sound and smell and all that kind of stuff. And I, we asked them to, to repeat it over and over again until they could just turn it on. And then to imagine they had a slot in the side of their heads. And whenever they felt negative thoughts coming, they would reach down, grab the thing, stick it in the slot and run it. Well, once you get good at that, you know, you can, it's easy to do. It's almost pat because you've made it all up. You've done it many, many times. And it would just overwhelm the negative it's the stuff, but you mentioned the self-talk. So here, what if it doesn't work? What if you find yourself saying, ah, oh, this is killing me today. I don't know why I feel so bad today. Look at this hill we're going to face. So what I taught them to do was, you're not, you don't have to be perfect. You're going to get negative stuff coming in your self-talk in your head. So you append to the end of it, but it doesn't matter. So it, so it becomes okay to say, oh, God, I'm really tired, today, but it doesn't matter. Or, you know, man, my, my feet are really killing me, but it doesn't matter. Because it only matters if you decide it does. If you decide it doesn't, then it doesn't. Because that's your body will believe what your head tells it to believe. So I used to use this example. I say, look, we're all going to hurt. We're going to get to days. I, I say we because I ran the first, first four times we taught it. I ran the marathon with the kids. So I would tell them about here's, what's, here's what happens to me. Because I get pains in my knees after, you know, X number of miles. And I can either say, oh, God, here, come, here it comes. Here comes the pain underneath Dan. What am I going to do? Or I could say, which I learned to teach myself to say, oh, there you are. I've been looking for you. Come on, let's run together. Now, I know that sounds almost nutty. But the truth of the matter is when I would take the pain and say, oh, the good. Come on, let's go. Where you been all day? Let's run together. I could run that way. And it didn't hurt as much or maybe even at all. It is is incredible about the power of self-talk too. And in the book, you also talk about though, there are some limitations to that, that if you, if you are experienced, maybe overtraining, or if there's an injury that is developing, that it's a fine line between, um, you know, just pushing through those uh, maybe limitations or physical issues instead of dealing with those. And it's hard to yep. know in life where, where that balance falls. Yes, it is. In fact, sometimes people say, so what you're saying is, and I had a guy on the basketball team say this to me one time, what you're saying is, if I just imagine myself making those free throws, I can get to the point I'll make 100 in a row. And I said, well, you got to shoot some free throws in practice. You don't just, it's, it ain't just making it up in your head. You have to do the work so that, That's what I tell people. If you think you can read this book and read all the mental preparation stuff and then go run the marathon, you might have a little problem there because you got to run. But what that does is what you said. It can get you to the point where even when your body is signaling you, hey, there's something wrong here, 
you think you can think your way through it. Well, just like you have to do the work to get ready, you have to pay attention to the reality of what's the difference between discomfort and injury. If you're injured, you gotta do something different. Discomfort, you learn to live with and, and change mentally, but injury and, dis and discomfort aren't the same thing. They're different. And that's something I think a lot of times we might confuse in everyday life is that we set our boundaries of what we expect reality to be very close and that the physical realities might be very far out, but we never get yep. to those, those limits. And I think your book, you have the practical side and then the cognitive side. Now, your part, where did you find inspiration for the different techniques? You talked about your mentor. Is there any uh, books or anything like that that you found helpful as far as when you were putting this program together? Sure. And one of them is one that I know you're familiar with because something you mentioned to me had the same phrase in it. One of them is a book by a guy named Julian Rotter, R-O-T-T-E-R. And what it's about is what he called locus of control. And the word locus, of course, means place. And what one of the, and the issue he was raising is where is your perceived locus of control? Are you controlled by, at some point by things outside yourself? That's what's called, he called an external locus of control. Or are you control, do you believe that the locus of control in your life is inside you somewhere? Because that's what's helpful. It's now, you can't, you, you can't control the events that sometimes some events occur in your life that you can't control. But what he always said was, but you're always in control of your reaction to those events. If you take control of your reaction, like you did to, to, to all the surgeries and to all the illnesses, you could have decided, okay, those, these things, which you, you couldn't have stopped happening were disabling in the sense that you weren't going to be able to live a life of any kind of activity at all. Clearly that's not what you did. But that, but so you were developing an internal locus of control by saying, I can make something about this. I can, I'm in charge of how I react to this and how I'm going to react to this is, and you fill in the blank and that's what you did. So Julian Rotter's work was very, very stimulating to me. And then another guy who's, if you've never heard of him, you're not even going to believe his name. His name is Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. And that's, a, that's an Eastern European name. It's spelled C-S-I-C-K. E-M-E-L-E-A-Y or something like that. But Csikszentmihalyi wrote a book called Flow, Achieving Flow. I was very influenced by that. I actually got him to come and talk to one of our marathon classes one time because he was in Des Moines and we were only 100 miles away. So he took the whole class to Des Moines and sat for an afternoon with Csikszentmihalyi. And Csikszentmihalyi talked about creating flow. Now, flow is that moment in which there's a perfect coordination between your ability and the challenge that you face. It's not easy, it's, an, it's right at the edge of your ability. But the, the experience of getting into a situation where you're working on a task that's really big, it's tough, whatever it is, but you believe you can do it and you push and, and you get to that point where the flow comes because your, your level of ability is exactly what it takes to get through that moment. And you know what happens? It's fun. Flow is fun. Right. And, so, and so something that could have been really unpleasant becomes fun. So the way I used to get the students to think about it was, I'd say to them, at the, I used to do this at the beginning of the course, I'd say, here's what I want you to do today. I want you to think about the last time you had fun. And I'm not going to define it. I'm just going to let you, you define it any way you want. But I want you to think about what was the last time you had fun? And what were you doing? Where were you? 
Think about what was going on, who was there, okay? You got it? Think about that time. Now, one more, let's each have two. Think of the next time before that that you had fun. Once you have two times in mind that you had fun. I used to do this with executives in business companies too. And sometimes there'd be somebody who couldn't think of a time when they had fun. And I said, you, you really are hurting. You, you, we need special help for you. Go sit over there. If you never had fun. But most people can think about, you know, times they had, they didn't know why, but it, it was fun. So here's what I'd say. You don't have to tell the rest of the people in the room what it was that you were doing because it doesn't matter. But I'll tell you what you were doing. Every, and this is going to work for everybody. You were doing something that was so involving that you didn't care who you was around. You didn't care if you looked silly. You didn't care how long it took. You weren't thinking about anything except the thing right in front of you. That's what you were doing when you had fun. It might have been working hard. It might have been dancing. It might have been looking at the sky. I don't know what it was, but you were totally focused on the moment at hand. That's what makes fun. And the funny thing about that is, that's a pun intended, you also do your best work when you're totally focused on what's right in front of you whether it's training for a marathon or whether it's trying to prepare for an exam or whatever it is. So fun occurs under the exact same conditions as your best work. Now, what we have to do to get there is we got to learn to concentrate and focus our energy in on that thing so that we can increase the likelihood that we're going to have fun. We make that reality. Yeah, and I think that's important to talk about flow state because I think humans are programmed to seek out the flow state. And a lot of yes. times with, with the way we live in our modern society, it's becoming harder and harder to do that, especially with the combination of the mind and body. Like you talk about dancing, that's, that's flow state, you know, and I think that's why running and marathons are so appealing to people because it does combine all of those aspects into one event. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right when you say it's getting harder and harder. Every time I see somebody trying to do two things at once, because they think they're good at multitasking, like driving and using a cell phone, just for one of many, many examples, I think to myself, nobody's having any fun in that car because they're doing two things at once, at least two things at once, maybe more. And, and I think I, I talk to lots of people today that say they glory in saying they're good at multitasking. Nobody's good at multitasking. You're not really multitasking. You're taking part of the energy and knowledge from one thing and putting it on another. Well, you took some from the thing you were doing before. It's not like we have an expanding possibility of many, many more tasks. Multitasking, by definition, inhibits flow. By definition. And so we got it. And that's what corporate America is based upon right now. Yes, it is. Isn't it? And they got it wrong. They got it completely wrong. So we were actually, when we wrote this book in 98, we were anticipating that the trouble that's going to, that social media is going to create and that, and, and, and we didn't know it, but pe you know, people carrying phones around doing everything. We now have people addicted to their, I mean, literally it's become an identifiable, psychologically identifiable addiction. People can't do without their phones, just like they can't do without drugs, some of them, or they can't do without alcohol or whatever it is. And, that, and as long as they're divided, as long as their energy is divided, they can't achieve flow. They can't have fun. They can't do anything constructive. Julian Rotter would be horrified if he saw how little that locus of central locus of control these people have. So, yeah, that's absolutely true. And it is, I think it's much worse now than it was when we, were, when we did this book. Much worse. And you talk about social media and they have people, they, um, they employ uh, psychologists and psychiatrists 
to actually um, structure the way that their programs work, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, to take advantage mm-hmm. of that, where you don't actually ever fall into that flow state, but it's just the next the next click will get you there. The next click, you know, you need to read one more article. And it's this, yeah. this churning that never really satisfies what humans are yeah. made to do. Yeah, unfortunately, you're right. I wish that weren't the case, but that I, I, I'm, no, I'm unhappy with some members of my profession because they are now employed and actually doing, doing damage. I shouldn't be laughing. It, it's a sad thing, but you're right about it. But I think, too, that um, your book is so important because it gives an outlet to people um, to get away from their phones. Because when you're running a marathon, I remember when I ran mine or completed mine, I ran probably half, walked half, but um, I couldn't think of anything else. You know, finished it. That's all that matters. I finished Greg. it. That's right. Yes. I interrupt. Go ahead. No, that's fine. And I, I couldn't look at a phone. I couldn't do anything else. You're just fully engaged. And during that time, it wasn't all flow state. I've got to be honest with you. You know, there were ups and downs and struggles. But that little bit of flow state, every time I'd go out and run, I always at least achieved a little bit of that. And that was enough to get me out the, ne- the door the next day. Now, mm-hmm. are, do you teach when you were teaching your class? Did they experience the flow state a lot, or did you help them kind of hone in their abilities to bring that about and uh, not just rely on chance for that to happen? It, it varied, Brad. There were some people who seemed to seemed to, eat, to have no challenge at all to move into that. They would get into that state a lot. There were a lot of others who needed a lot of help, and the ones that needed the most help were the ones that were using the precursor of the cell phone. It was called a Walkman. <laughs> They had a little little radio, a little tape player or something that they would carry around or stick in their pocket or whatever, and then they'd have a little headset on. They'd be listening to music, and they'd show up to run and listen to music, and I would say, get rid of that thing. Put that, well, but I like it. It makes me feel good. And I said, what do you think about it? So, well, I don't know. And I said, well, let's work on that a little bit. Let's see what we can think of it. What I was encouraging them to do was what we called associative thinking. Think about running Think about how your feet are hitting the ground. Think somebody said, "I can." You want me to think about my feet and my legs for two hours? I say, "Yes, that's exactly what I want you to do." Now, it may be hard to do, but let's give that a try. Leave the headset at home today, will you? Now, another th- issue completely is, and it's showing up today too. The number of pedestrians being killed today in, in today's is way up because people are walking along with their with their cell phones and running out in front of cars. Well, that's what, when you're training for a marathon and you're training on sit on the streets. I was always worried about my students getting hit because they, if they're listening to music and not looking around. So I, it was for their safety, too. Mm-hmm. But the answer to your question is it varied widely with the students. But we, the way to, to, be, to improve your ability to get into flow is to, is to improve your ability to concentrate. So you may recall there's, some, there's a chat section in the book about ability to increase your ability to concentrate and focus. And we even had some exercises where we'd, we'd get tell everybody bring a newspaper to class this Thursday. So they'd all bring a newspaper. And we'd say, okay, we're going to spend the first 15 minutes crossing out the letter T everywhere we can find it in the newspaper. So they have to go through the newspaper and look for letter T's in the newspaper. And now, the funny thing was that some people were really good at that. Those are the people that could concentrate. Concentrate on what? Something as stupid as crossing out T's? Doesn't matter what you're at, you concentrate on. You can get better at focusing on one thing by practicing. So, or we would give them a big table with digits written in like that, and we'd say, cross them out in order. First one, then two, then three, all the way up to 100, or whatever. 
just to see if they could get better. And some people could really get better in a hurry. I mean, like in a couple hours, they could get better at concentrating. And because it's fun, when you find out that you can concentrate well, it feels really good. And so it reinforces itself, which traces back to the idea that achievement leads to motivation. If you can help people find a way to get better at something, they'll keep doing it because it's fun to get better. It's fun to get better. And I think that's... That goes it's to not me. get worse. Exactly. And <laughs> the idea that a lot of times we become frustrated in life, especially children. I know when I was younger and then I, if I wasn't to succeed immediately at something, I would want to leave it alone. But if there was something that I was, I was interested in, then, you know, that would be an effortless uh, time to uh, put, put the work in. There you go. That's right. That's right. Now, are you looking well, to um, are you looking to teach this class anymore, or have you thought about taking it to like the high school or junior high level, or do you think that it wouldn't apply um, to that age group? Well, the answer to the first question, am I going to teach it anymore? Is no. I'm 77 years old, and what I do now is I ride motorcycles almost every day. I ride all over the country. Okay. Nice. And that I did my work, and I still get. Yeah. Thank yous from students. I got one just the other day after I, I heard from you. I got I got a, an email from a student who, who's, who has now run 10 more marathons and 104 half marathons. Wow. And, she's, and she and her husband have run in 44 states and it all started with the marathon class. So I still get the benefits, but I don't teach the course anymore. Okay. But as far as helping other people to get going, one way is I've had for years, I've had people, I, get, I hear from people who say, I would like to offer that course would you send me the materials? Well, now I say to them, well, we actually have a book. The whole thing is in the book. You can get the book. So there, it's been taught at a, a, a number of universities. I do not know of any high schools in which this has been done. But there's no reason it couldn't be done. As In fact, you might even be even better, although you might have trouble with getting parent parental consent and that sort of thing. I don't know how that, that would work. But other than the time that we taught in 2007 at Ball State, I have not taught the course and have no plans to teach it again. But anybody that wants to, as you well know, doesn't need to take the course. They can get the book. Everything needed is in this book. Everything. I'm not trying to sell books. I'm not trying to sell books. You know, the McGraw-Hill still has them. And if you want to get one on Amazon, you could get it. But that's not the point. But the thing is, it's not that complicated. As you know, you, you read it. It is not, there's nothing, no magic here. There's no scientific gobbledygook here. It's pretty straightforward stuff. And that's that's what I really liked about it as well, is that you had the physical side like we talked about, and it's a training schedule. It's four times a week, and it doesn't uh, take over your entire life, but it does set a schedule for you to have something to look forward to. And um, I've written a couple screenplays, and one of the books that I really liked is called Story. And the author, I think it was Robert McKee, he talked about creative limitations, that in art, you know, there's creative limitations by the form that you choose. And that creative limitations are something that we should seek to do in our own life. And I think that the marathon book is a perfect example of how you can voluntarily impose these creative limitations on your life and actually gain a huge benefit from that. I like that way of thinking a lot. I, I really do. I like that. I, you, and you mentioned something I should mention. You're right. The training program is only four days a week. And if somebody is listening to this podcast and listened early, they remember we had the first students run six days a week. <clears throat> which is where we started out. But we found out, we at one point, it looked to us after we'd taught the course three times, like that was too much running. And one of our goals was to have people not get hurt by training too much, which is what most people do when they get ready for a marathon. 
So we we divided the class of the third or fourth time we taught it into two groups, going back to the research model again. One half of the class, and these are all people that had volunteered to train for the marathon. They're getting their credit just like anybody else. Half of them, we said, you're only going to run four days a week. Well, some of them said, that's not going to be enough. And we said, yeah, we're pretty sure it is. So half of them ran four days a week, although they were terrified that they weren't doing enough training. And half of them ran six days a week. And, the, and what we found out was we did the, the psychological measurements again. You can do it on four days a week of training. You didn't need to train for six days, which meant your, your likelihood of getting through the training without getting injured was even higher. So we changed the whole thing. From then on, we only ran four days a week. Two medium runs, one short run, and one long run. That's it. Okay, and the, our biggest problem was to keep the kids from running two more days a week because they were so excited. They wanted to run more days. But you're right. The training program is only four days a week. It's by far much less structured. And, I mean, much less demanding than everything else that I know of that, that people suggest. In fact, I see lots of programs where they think you got to run every day. Well, you don't. You don't have to run every day. So you're right. It, the, this program doesn't impose it nearly as much on your life and you know, that's why it says on the back of the book, this is a book for people that have jobs and kids and, things, and have other things in life to do other than this, because it can take over your life if you if you let it. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. And you talked about the cognitive portion of it, that at first you guys were looking to see if people got in better shape with their cognitive performance uh, improve as well. There's a book mm -hmm. called Spark where this one uh, gentleman he was a scientist, and he had high school students run before their day started, and they tracked the kids who did run, and they found that those kids improved on uh, memory, on their test scores, on graduating high school as well. Did you see any improvements in your students, the ones that uh, after they took it, did their academic life improve, or did they improve in other ways? Well, I, I'm, the answer is yes, and I'll get to that in a minute, but let me just ask you to repeat it. That book's called Spark? Yes, Spark. You, mm -hmm. What's the author's name? Um, I'm not sure offhand, but I'll definitely have that in the show notes, and I'll, I'll get that to yeah. you. I've never heard of that before. I, I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, to answer your question, the answer is yes, but we didn't care, care, uh, gather any organized data on it. I can't give you like a grade point average before and after. So what I have is anecdotal. And, and being a scientist, I know that that's limited, limited anecdotal data. But I can tell you this, and, and some of it's in the book. People said, I actually was motivated to go and, and then they finished the, the, the paragraph, law school. Or I went on and do this, you know. So did they do? Do they think it made a difference in their lives? Do I think it made a difference in their lives? I don't think there's any doubt about it. Everybody's like, no. For some of the people, they ran their marathon, they got it over with, they went on and did something with it, or they didn't. But for some people, it made all the difference in the world in terms of their grade point. I, I'll give you one example of a guy. There was a guy. One of the guys. He's in the book. His name is Eric Stoneman. He was six foot two and weighed 232 pounds, and the only running he'd done was when his football high school coach told him you got to run laps because you weren't jerking around today. So that that was his only running. Eric tells me I'm still in touch with Eric Stone. Eric tells me he's now run 10 marathons. He's he he has started and and done very well with several different companies of his own in his sports memorabilia and that kind of thing. And Eric Stoneman tells me that that marathon class changed his life in the sense of where he was headed. Now, I've also gotten to know his parents. His parents think I'm a savior because they, because they, 
they thought he was on track to be a, a problem kid. And he totally changed as a result of this experience. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that he's typical. He's outstanding in that sense. But in the general answer to your question is, I am certain that this kind of an experience provides tremendous drive for a number of, for lots and lots of people, different levels, different amounts, some yes, some no, some a lot, some none. But yes, in general, I'm, there's no question that an experience like this leads to growth and development and, and different achievement levels in a lot of people. And in the book, you talked about peak experiences, that people are, that seek those out peak experiences. And I think that has a lot to do also with, there's a lack of rites of passage in our society today that we really don't have those peak experiences to bookmark our life like a lot of the more primitive hunter-gatherer tribes had. We have birth, you know, graduation, you know, marriage, kids' death, basically. And with the marathon, yeah. it, it, it gives us one of those rites of passage that I think that's why, you know, half a million people a year, I think, go through it. Do you think yep. there is something to that as far as psychology of rites of passage and using a marathon to fulfill that? I think it's a deeply human need. So do I. And, and you, you asked me earlier about people that had influenced me or things that I had read. And one of them was a guy who was sort of like the guru of what's called third force psychology. His name was Abraham Maslow. And Maslow talked about achievement motivation, but he talked about peak experiences. And he was the guy, in fact, who, as far as I know, who coined the phrase peak experiences. Now, for peak, what he meant by a peak experience is essentially what Csikszentmihalyi means by flow. Mm. That's the moment of flow. Because peak experiences, according to Maslow, occur when there's enough of a challenge in what you're doing that it's you, you're not sure you can do it, but you 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 put your energy in, you do all your preparation, you do the work, and the moment at which you realize you're doing this is what he called a peak experience. Now, here's what he said, just exactly what you're talking about. He thought that that was a normal human desire, even if we couldn't articulate it. We know, we know if, 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 when we're children, see, I'm, I keep going back to this, little kids get so excited sometimes when they do something for the first time, this is a peak experience, okay? But as, as we get older, we get more self-conscious, we get concerned or whatever else we get, and we kind of drift away from that. But we know what it's like. We can remember at some level what it's like to feel, wow, that's really cool, you know? But we don't say that anymore. You don't have 50-year-old guys going, wow, that's cool, man. But little kids go, woo, that's you just all the time because they're having peak experiences. It is, I agree with you, built into our territory. And Maslow said, and I believe it, they, were the, they are the fuel that keeps us going and looking for another one. And, and a lot of people will talk and denigrate the idea of progress and the searching for the new and better, but I think that's deeply ingrained within us too, to keep pushing our boundaries personally and as a species to find better ways to, to accomplish what you just talked about, feeling that wow. Yep, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that's true. I'm certain that's true. Maslow said, as far as we can tell, we are the only creature on earth that is built, put together in such a way that we can we even can even articulate that stuff. So when, what happens with us is we take this big three pounds of stuff in our brain and we can do all kinds of stuff with it like we've been talking about. Well, one of the things we can do about it is we can create goals. We look out and we can, we can look at something and say, wouldn't it be great if, 
And if we sometimes, and this marathon program is just one example, if we sometimes can then connect that, wouldn't it be great if with a set of activities or a set of things where we can actually make that thing happen, then we get that peak experience. So it's, it is essentially human. For Maslow, it was the core of what he thinks our species is about, that desire, that, that pull to have that experience or to do something that's so significant that we essentially go, wow, that is so great. And you, and you know, I can tell from your background, you, know, you never forget those things. Though once you do it, once you get to that moment, you never you, you own those things. As, as Herzberg, my first professor, used to say, nobody can take achievements away from you. Once you achieve them, once you do them, you own it. You can remember it. You can recreate it. Nobody can say or do anything to you that changes that. They weren't there. You were. They don't know. You do. You did it. You own it. That's a great point about the idea of memories of, of achievement. That That's another way to improve your confidence, too. I think a lot of times confidence comes from competence. And that if you have examples of competence in your history, then then you're naturally, you're not going to have to fake confidence. It's naturally going to um, come from that. I love that phrase. Confidence comes from confidence. That, absolutely right. I'm never, I haven't heard it put that way before, but that, I like that. Now, do you, you think, you should, why do you think... You should, she, you should coin that. You should get whatever the rights are to that phrase, because that's a good one. I think I'm sorry. I, I, I think I stole that. All I do is repeat what other smarter people say. That's all I do. I'm an aggregator. That's all I do. Well, I like it. I think that's really good. Well, thank you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, what, what, you know, we were talking about how the brain works and human needs, and there are ways to feel that wow and to feel that flow state more and more. Why do you think schools are set up the way they are, which seems in business for that matter, a lot of the corporate businesses and government definitely, it's the complete opposite of that, that they're trying to take the wow out of life. They're trying to, uh, to take away the individuality and the idea that you should be pursuing the stuff that makes you feel that wow. Ooh, you got me on thin ice there, buddy. I got... <laughs> Um, you ever hear of a, another psychologist, a guy named Larry Peter? You ever hear of the Peter Principle? Mm -hmm. Well, the Peter Principle, it's mostly applied in big organizations, but in government also. And, and he would answer, and I would therefore also answer your question in the following way. <clears throat> Larry Peter said that here's what happens in big organizations, whether they're governmental or business or whatever. is We put somebody in a job, and if they succeed and do it well, we promote them to the next level. And if they succeed at that one and they do that, well, we keep promoting them. We keep moving them up until we put them in a job that they can't do very well. And then we leave them there. <laughs> so he, what he says, sooner or later, almost everybody rises to his or her level of incompetence. But that's where they stay. That's where they stay. So he, he, would, he would say we have a substantial number of people in big organizations. The government just happens to be the biggest of them, which are people by – individuals who are incompetent for their jobs, but they got there by doing a good job lower down. But now they've arrived at a job where they're not good enough to get promoted, so that's where they're gonna spend the rest of their lives. But we are victimized by that. That's my answer to your question. I gotcha. Now, when, when you were teaching this class, uh, what was the response of your students when you first 
did the class because the people that read your book, they have the experience and they have the trust that you've already done this. You've already accomplished it. How did you convince your students, that first group of kids, that they were going to be able to do that? And how much do you think that trust later on plays into the success of people who come later on down the road and find your book? Well, let me take it in reverse order. No question that it it does, we were able to say after the third or fourth time, listen, let me show you how many kids have done this before. And so if you do exactly what I tell you to do for 16 weeks, you will run 26.2 miles on May 7th. And the reason I know it is because 200 people before you've already done it. Not one of them has failed. OK, so that the bad, the second part of your question is absolutely we use that now for the for the first group of 14 kids. We remember how we got them to do it. We got them to do it by giving them credits. Oh, that's right. For, and, but, and, and for, and here's, we also told them this. This course, and we did this all the way through, is graded A or F. There's only two grades in this course. You finish the marathon, you get an A. You don't finish it, you get an F. Now, <laughs> that's motivation. That's powerful for students. I mean, they, I mean there, there's been a lot of grade inflation in the last. You know, so A's aren't as rare, but in those days when we first started teaching this in 1985, an A was a big deal. So the way we got the kids to do it the first time was essentially was to pick a few kids that we we thought had the capability to do this. But remember, we're shooting in the dark here Mm -hmm. and tell them if you can do this and we think, see, we couldn't say anymore. We, We couldn't say like we could later. We have the proof. We didn't have the proof. We said, we think that if you do this and this and this, you're going to be able to run 26.2 miles. And I will tell you that we had we were having trouble finding people to do that the first time. This it was it wasn't like they stampeded our door, you know, to get there because the whole idea of running six days a week, which we were asking them to do, and starting that running in Iowa in the middle of winter, because that's what they had to do. They had to run outside on that first Saturday, and it was probably 20 below or whatever it was. This was not easy to do. This was not easy to get people to do this. So I think I would have to say we were fortunate in finding 14 people willing to try this the first time when we had no proof at all that this was going to work. In fact, we said to them, you're going to be subjects in our research. We're using you as guinea pigs. You're going to take a whole lot of psychological tests. You're going to get on a treadmill and you're going to run until you collapse and fall off the back of the treadmill. And I mean, this is not exactly a recruiting <laughs> tool, you know. So the answer to your question is we got lucky. Mm-hmm. We really mm-hmm. did. We got lucky. And all 14 of them finished. Now, the next time we taught it, we could say, we've taught this course once before, and every single person, even though there are only 14 of them, they all finished a marathon. You want to do that? So we got found them. We found 25 more who said, yeah. And then we kept going in that in that way. That's how, But we got lucky. Do you, think, this, do you think it was a little bit of self-selection of the people who would normally gravitate towards something like that? Do you think they had psychological predisposition to do that? They probably did. I haven't thought about it in that way, but I've often thought you know, what made those kids do it, and that would certainly explain it. What you, yeah, probably, yeah. But but keep in mind that they had no. In the later on, we took kids that had a little bit more running experience. But when we were just trying to prove this at the beginning, the question was. What happens when you take untrained people, which we define as ever having run more than three miles, and, and put them in training? And to, what happens to them physically and psychologically? So none of those 14 people had ever run more than three miles. You, so they had no, no reason to believe they could do this, except that we told them they could. 
And that's so powerful too. I think it has part of that to do with the authority, um, your authority as well in their life is that if we're told by an authority figure that, that we can do something, we're more likely to believe that we can. That's absolutely true. In my case, Forrest at that time had not run marathons before. I had run six marathons or five marathons before. So at least I could stand up there and say to him, look at me. What do I look like an athlete to you? I'm just a skinny guy. You know, I'm just a, <laughs> I was already, how old was I? 40. I was born in 1940. I was 44 years old and I didn't look like an athlete, you know. So in part, not only was the guy in the front of the room a scientist, he'd done it. He'd done it several times before. I know what it's like. So when we started talking to him, for example, the thing that scared him the most was what's known as the wall in marathoning. And, and that, that, was, that scared the devil out of him. And it should have, because it's, you know what it's about. It's, it's terrifying. Yeah, it's brutal. And you generally hit it somewhere past 18 miles because your body simply can't store enough energy to go more than that far. Unless you're a world-class marathoner, in which case you're done hours before that. But if, you, if you've been out there for three and a half hours, whatever it is, and your body runs out of fuel, which is exactly what happens, it starts to consume its own muscle tissue. That's why it hurts so much. If the body is consuming itself to keep going. Now, we tell the kids this, and when I'm standing up there saying that, Forrest is going to be, look, take it easy, Dave. Take, take it back off. Just. <laughs> and I said, well, we can't lie to them. Let's not lie to them. That's, not, that's unethical. we got to tell them the truth. But I, when I think back over it, it was almost like I was trying to talk them out of it. But I, but I didn't. They all stayed, and they all, they all finished a marathon. Well, I think that's important too with your book. What it, what I, I've read a, a ton of like self help books, and I, I would put that in uh, this, this book in that category as well. But it's more, it's more than that because it's practical. That a lot of books, you know, especially books like The Secret or something like that, where you just think things into reality. What this right. does, it actually inspires you to physically go do something in reality. And I think that you talk about, you know, controlling inertia and having inertia on your side. And, you know, you guys really laid out the specific track where people can do that. Yep, that's exactly right. And that, that's the key issue. It, it, it's, it's great to have dream and have desires. And, and, and you're right, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just talking about how to organize your thoughts and organize your dreams. But what we get, got people to do was to take the identify the obstacles and then overcome those obstacles with a practical program. We know exactly what you're supposed to do. And not just and, you know, because you read the book, it's not just how many miles you got to run. It's what you eat. Mm -hmm. It's how much sleep you get. It's about how you stretch and keep try to keep your body from cramping up. It's just, we, we knew what all the challenges were as we went along. And there's practical advice because. I actually think it's a disservice to offer somebody some kind of dreamlike state and then you don't give them the, the tools to get there. That, that's, again, that's ethically indefensible to me. It's just not right. If you're going to suggest to somebody, here's a valuable goal, and, but you don't know how to get there except to think about it or dream about it or make plans or what, I don't know. That, that, I never thought that got it done. So I agree. I'm, thank you for saying it because I think that one of the best things about our program is we actually know what to do. We, and we tell you, do, do this, don't do this. I used to say to the students, if you can't take orders for 16 weeks, then you don't want to be in here because there's no, there's no argument here. There's no discussion. You don't get to say anything about what you do and what you don't do. I understand that the, you don't, a lot of people don't like that, but I'm telling you, I know how to do this. Do what I tell you to do. Don't screw around with this. 
If you do what I tell you to do, you will run 26.2 miles on May 7th in Des Moines. If you don't, you're on your own. I got nothing for you. <laughs> You've done all you could, right? That's right. That's, that's all I can do. That's right. And when <laughs> you talk about um, practical steps, because a lot of times when you'll read a book about um, psychology or philosophy or self-help, they don't really provide those concrete examples of what to do right. when that self-talk comes because that negative self-talk really spirals out of control so fast. You know, it's happening yes. to me, especially if you don't feel well, you've got some other issues in life and everybody's got different stresses and strains in their life. But to when you can stop that negative self-talk and actually reverse it back, I think that's when you can make really, really big gains in life. That's absolutely true. And keep in mind that, that creating that negative stuff is, is an, is you're still doing the same thing. You're creating your own reality. And every time you let those negative thoughts spiral, you're, you're making your life worse. But, but, and that's why the simple little, and this is an example of why I think we were on the right track. The simple little technique of when that negative thing slips out of your mouth, you say, but it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter. And, and I, had, I can't tell the number of times I had students come out and say to me, that's a magical thing, but it doesn't matter. I just have to get that word out of my mouth, and it means the other line, forget that other line, cancels out that line that said, I'm really tired today. But it doesn't matter. But, that's what, but we have to offer people something like that, because you're right. Otherwise, it can spiral out of control. Practical techniques are what it's that's – maybe I should have said it this way. When we said achievement leads to motivation, it's on the, that's a special case – of the following thing. Behavior leads to attitude. We think of attitudes as causes of behavior. They're not, they're justifiers. So you wanna get something to change, change the behavior. And that's what this is all about. What we're gonna alter the behavior and you'll begin to feel different. So you, the attitude isn't the cause. The attitude is the explanation later on. If somebody says to you, well, why did you do that? Nobody wants to say, I don't know, my behavior's random. I have no idea why the hell I did that. So what they say is, well, the reason I did that, now they don't know yet at the beginning. When they begin that sentence, they don't know yet why they did that. But it, because it doesn't make, you know, nobody likes to say, I don't know why I do anything. What they do is they start talking about why they did it, and they come to believe that that's why they did it. That's not why they did it. That's their justification afterwards. Behavior precedes attitude. When somebody says to you, you got a bad attitude, what are they talking about? They can't see your attitude. They're talking about the behavior, okay? So the behavior is the key. And what this is about is how do you behave in order to have a peak experience? Here's one way to do it. Relates to running 26.2 miles. But the principle is the same. How do you behave in order to, now fill in the, fill in the blank with whatever peak experience you're after. But it's still about the behavior. Now, how much do you think that storytelling is a part of this? I think humans are innately geared for story, and that when yeah. we when we give ourselves uh, when we're um, giving ourselves self talk, we're really yeah. telling ourselves a story. And every time that I was running, or a lot of times I was running and I'd go up a hill or something, that little paragraph you had us write that was four to five sentences long. That it was yeah. basically the story of who you. I am a marathon runner. I love yep. hills. Hills are my friend. And just over and over, you're telling the same story. Well, you know what. I'm always embarrassed to admit this, but I will tell you, I agree completely with you. We, human beings are subject to being influenced by stories. And I, the reason I'm embarrassed to say that is because what I'm supposed to be is the data guy. I'm supposed to say stories don't matter. Anecdotes don't matter. Only double-blind, random assignment, the studies, that's the only thing that matters. 
Well, it's the only thing that matters to prove something, to generate the data. But in individual cases, we are, as creatures, subject to stories, powerfully influenced by stories. So I can't really say stories don't matter. They do matter. They just aren't the research data. They're the, they're the individual influencers, and they count a lot. How much do you think, in the book, you don't really talk about emotions much, but it seems like emotions follow um, success and achievement. Are they really emotions a precursor for motivation, or do they trail behind what we're actually doing in reality or how we, how we uh, frame reality? I think they follow behind. I think emotions are special cases of attitudes. I think, I think it's the same, the, the same line. So I think they follow on. I think that they're tremendously powerful. I mean, something like a peak experience, is, it's an emotional explosion. So there's no question that the, that the depth of emotion that human beings feel is, is a powerful thing, but they are created by or not created by behavior. That's what I think. Gotcha. Now, what would you, it's been uh, 20 years since you've, uh, since the book has come out, a little over 20 years. Is there anything in psychology or neuroscience or any, any other uh, fields that you would want to add or to change what was in the book? Because I think the like you talked about the uh, the metaphor, the analogy with the VC, the VHS tape, you know that. Uh, but that still applies, though. You know that the the principle is still sound. Is there anything else in the book that you want to add to, or or what would you like to change? This is going to sound very um, arrogant, maybe. No. <laughs> I, I like <laughs> <There's>, that. <laughs> no. There's the, the things that I would change. It's interesting that you asked that because a few years ago, the publisher said, if you were going to change the book, how would you change it? And Forrest and I went through it and wrote in a whole lot of changes. But they were all small things like we would change where every time it says put a tape in, we would say put a CD in or something like that. Right. I don't see anything. And I still keep up with the literature. I don't see anything that I regard as significant enough to change the fundamental belief I have about how human behavior operates that's been generated in the last 20 years. No, I don't. I'm not saying it's not there, but I'm the guy you're asking today, and I'm saying no. There's nothing wrong <laughs> with that, because the more that uh, I was going through rereading the book, because I've read about Stoicism and, and different philosophies and religions, and it's really the old ideas, they still hold true, especially with the idea of locus of control. It's very a very stoic idea that it's not what happens to you externally, it's how you process it. Right, right. I think, in fact, I... Maybe I'll sound too critical now, but the kind of stuff I see being generated by people in the field of human behavior in the last few years look like nonsense to me. The most recent one I heard, maybe you've heard of this too, I got introduced the other day to something that's being done in seminars and training, in, in training programs of various kinds called fidget toys. Have you ever heard the term fidget toys? Is that the spinner thing? Yeah, you've heard, heard, heard about those? I was talking to somebody who was going to run a seminar and asked me what I thought about having fidget toys available for all the, the, the management people who were going to be in the meeting. And I said, what? What are they? And this person told me what they were. And I went and spent an hour or so on the, online looking to see what the research is on fidget toys. Fidget toys were originally developed to help kids do, who are extremely out of control on what they call sensory integration to get focused in on things, to improve their ability to focus and concentrate. And now they're being tried out with, with kids on the autism spectrum, okay? 
So this person is wanting to know if a room full of adults might really enjoy having fidget toys on the table. I said, let me tell you something. This is a joke. If I walked in for a management training seminar and, and said, what's this on the table? They said, oh, those are called fidget toys. It's to help you focus on concentration. I would say, let me out of this room. What are you talking about? This is some, you're, you're talking, I know what this is. This is for kids who we think are artistic. I'm a manager. I'm, now, that doesn't mean the guy's got his, all, got his act together. But this is the kind of gimmicky stuff that I think our field is unfortunately drifting towards. And so I have no respect for it at all. I think it's nonsense. I told this person that, by the way. I said, you, I wouldn't show up with these in a room. Because in my opinion, you're going to lose the respect that anybody's got his head on right in that meeting. But, and I use that only as an illustration. I'm not saying that's the whole thing. But I see a lot of stuff like that that I think is gimmicky and fatty and people are, I, I don't have any respect for it. So, again, that's just another no. If I would, if I were going to write this book again, I'd write the same book today. Well, fantastic. Well, I'm glad that you did write it. Now, do you think the research quality out there right now has to do with um, the um, that uh, professors have to uh, publish so many articles and there's a lot of pressure for um, for grants, you know, um, with funding and the way the funding system actually works from the really the top down with a lot of government funding, um, the research? Do you think a lot of that is funneling some of this bad bad science or do you think it's cultural that there's something else going on? I think it's more cultural. I don't know for a fact, but I, that kind of stuff went on when I was teaching too. There was a lot of competition for grants and where's the money and people reading little things and say, Oh, see there, what we used to call department of health, education, and welfare is interested in this. Let's propose a study on that because we'll get that funded. That's not new, Brad. That's been going on a long, long time. So I don't, I don't, see that as having changed. But what I do see as having changed is the general, I think, deterioration of respect for genuine intellect in our culture. So that would, I, got, I think that's got more to do with it. And I don't mean to indict all the people that are still on campus. If any of them are happen to listen to your podcast, say, oh, there goes Witsen again. He's, <laughs> here we go. So I don't know. But I'm just, I just don't have to see a whole lot going on that has a lot of respect out of me for what the research stuff being done is. That's fair enough. I think, like you said, the fundamentals haven't really changed. You know, human beings are still human beings, and, and our operating system works the way it does, and that all of these new angles where they're trying to come at it from, uh, I don't think are really helpful in a lot of ways, because all we really want to know is how to stop the negative ideas, how to set goals, and how to achieve them. That's right. That's really what we're all about, definitely. Well, is, is there one part of the book that you would like to leave people with as far as a cognitive tool that they can use to help achieve more in life and to live a, a happier, more peak experience-filled life? I, I want people to, and this is where the book starts, you'll remember, to realize that whether they feel good or whether they feel bad, they are creating that reality. We are creating our own reality all day, every day. So if they want to have a positive experience, they need to work on what they're doing with their heads, what they're saying to themselves, what they're telling themselves about what's likely to be happening today or tonight or tomorrow. Because the reality is whatever is going to happen is what you think is going to happen. That's what happens. That's why when we told people about the wall in the marathon, one of our students said, well, after running the marathon, I can tell you exactly what happens psychologically at the wall. Whatever you think is going to happen, that's what happens. That's the way life is. 
Well, like I said, this book has been a very powerful, the non-runner's marathon trainer. I, I bought, I think, three or four copies of it. I've given some away. I've got it on Kindle. And, uh, and I'm rereading it as well because I'm doing a new journey. It's not marathon, but it's podcasting. And so these same okay. techniques and these same um, ideas apply to whatever it is that people are trying to do in their life. Glad to hear it. Thank you. Thank you, David, for being on. And I urge everybody to check out the book, The Non-Runners Marathon Trainer. Get it on Amazon and read through it. Even if you don't want to complete a marathon, it has some really great ideas, techniques, and tools that you can use to live a happier and healthier life. Uh, it, it definitely helped me and it helped my mom as well. So thank you, David, for being on today. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for watching. We'll see you next time.